0: In his 2000 book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam subtitled it, uh, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And the book was really more about the collapse of American community. And it had some ideas for what the revival could look like, but it wasn't even actually saying that there was a revival among Amer- with American community. And, and the title comes from his research on bowling, of all things. Uh, Because bowling had become, around that time, had become more and more popular. So the number of people bowling had grown by 10%, which I found surprising. Um, But apparently, of all the sports, bowling is is doing the best. But, he noted, that the number of people bowling in leagues had decreased by 40%. So bowling was up by 10%, but the number of people... uh, um, uh, bowling in leagues had decreased by 40%. And then he went on through American society to trace how this sort of uh, facet is, is playing itself out in all different areas in American society. Um, people are doing things more and more individually and less and less communally. Now, we have evidence of this breakdown of community in our, our own lives as well. We, we can see it. It's evident to us when we look around. Some of you maybe see this in the political dynamic, the conversation that's happening in our world right now, the character of the political dialogue. Some of you maybe see this um, in the way that we treat and and take care of or don't take care of the elderly in our community, which is a, a great change from generations past. Some of you may see this when you think about young people in our world and the sense of isolation that they experience oftentimes turning to you know, all-night gaming uh, to find some sort of community or pornography or whatever it is that we turn to to meet that need that we have as we continue to experience the breakdown of community in our world. Well, so happens that the church is intended to be a healing balm, B-A-L-M, soothing healing balm, on this societal wound that we're facing right now as a culture. And the church is supposed to model what real community is like, and it's supposed to invite people into that community that they might experience it in ever-growing numbers. And that's what our text talks about this morning, is what is that community like? Uh, it tells us how to be that kind of community. It ends up being a healing balm in a world where there is a, a continual decay of community and relationships. So would you open with me to Ephesians 4, verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and we'll hand one to you. Um, don't be shy about uh, taking one of these Bibles. Um, in fact, if you don't have a Bible at home, take this Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have it on your nightstand so you can... Think about this text all week long, uh, maybe refer to it and ponder it, chew on it a little bit more. Um, It's on page 675 in that Bible, Ephesians 4, verse 25, and we're going to be reading through chapter 5, verse 2. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. To those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This text tells us really how to be community. And I want to look at it in two movements. I want to, first of all, Look at how we're to think about community, because this is maybe even the most important part. How do we think about community? And then secondly, how do we do community? How do we live it out on a daily basis? So let's jump right in and ask this question. How do we think about community? And the key phrase for me in this text, the one that causes me to stop and just think, what does that mean, is right there in verse 25, for we are members one of another. We are members one of another. Now, when we think about membership these days, we think about Costco, right? Are you a member at Costco or BevMo or wherever it is? And here's how I experience membership when I go to Costco. Um, When I drive into the parking lot, I'm not usually thinking love. Um, I'm feeling the competitive uh, juices rising inside of me as I think about how am I going to get a parking place? And I use all of my means to be able to get that parking place. And if I'm fortunate enough to get one uh, close enough, then I'm happy. And, I, and maybe I'll make it from my car to the door without getting run over as everybody else is trying to find the parking place as well. Um, and they're all being very competitive. And I'll dodge the, uh, the fights going on in the parking lot. And then as I get to the door, I'm squeezed in this crush of people, the other members, right? Right? All of us members are squeezed into the doorway and there's somebody at that door who checks my identification to make sure that I'm a member. And then as I walk in, um, I begin to dodge the oversized shopping carts that are filled with 94 packs of turkeys that are just laden down because they don't sell just one. And if I'm lucky, I make it out of Costco and back home again. But I'll tell you what never happens to me. I never think with a sigh Oh, how I love membership at Costco. (laughs) What's happening is all throughout our culture, stores and businesses are commoditizing this idea of membership so that they can make money with it. Now, Costco actually turns out to be one of the better uh, corporations in our country. It's always, so I'm not really attacking Costco. But what I am addressing is the impoverished sense of membership that characterizes our everyday experience. And by the way, when I'm talking about membership here, I'm not talking principally about the official membership in a church, although that is part of it. I want to go and think on even a deeper level, which is sort of spiritually, what does it mean to be members one of another? which may or may not link with that official uh, membership. So there's this commoditizing of, of membership, which is so different from what the term means in the Scripture. In the Scripture, it actually refers to body parts, and it can also refer to musical parts. So there's a real intense kind of union that's being suggested by this word member. In fact, When you see somebody walking down the street, you don't say, look at all those body parts moving together, right? You see one person in your mind, you think of one person. Your mind automatically assembles them all together as one person. There's an intense union that goes on. How do we judge musicians and bands? We often walk away and say, wow, they're tight, right? That means they played well together so that they sounded as if there was just one If you closed your eyes, it sounded like one functioning together. That's what membership really is. It's body parts together as one. It's musical parts making harmony together. And we see this in verse 15 and 16. If you go back up a little bit in the chapter. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And listen to this language. From whom... The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each body is working, excuse me, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. We're thinking on the level of joints and sinews that hold together this body in perfect union so that it is one. That's what membership is getting at. It's so much more than shopping with people you don't know in the same place. And I have to say, I have been on a long personal journey to understand membership in this sense. And I think I'm actually just still kind of working it out. I, 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 I'm still wrestling through all that this entails. And, and I think if I analyze why my journey has been slow and why this has been hard for me, I think part of it is, is you know, my family of origin. I was the second child. My brother is six years older, older than me. So um, I almost grew up as an only child. So that made me kind of look at the world in a particular way. I am a, a product of the culture that, that Robert Putnam is talking about, the bowling alone culture, so that shapes the way I think about relationships. I'm, I'm, I'm an American, um, which means that you know we hold on to this rugged individualism kind of ideal that shapes so much. And then just by personality, I tend to be an independent worker. And so all of that, I think, has has come together to make this concept of membership harder for me to grasp. And so I've been on this journey, I feel like, to try to understand what does it really mean in the biblical sense to be members one of another. And and God, in His great mercy, has given me a wonderful mentor in this process over the last years in the form of one of my favorite authors, whose name is Wendell Berry. Some of you may have read some Wendell Berry. And the subtitle of Wendell Berry's uh, most famous book is is, is the f- most, most famous book is Jaber Crow and the subtitle is the membership of Port William, and I ran over that phrase, the membership of Port William, and it comes up in the book. He uses the term membership, and every time it just didn't even sink into me. I just it just sort of ran over that that phrase or that concept until about the third book that I read, and I finally said, why does he keep bringing up this concept of membership? And you begin to to ponder the relationships in this little fictional town of Port William and the way that people interrelate and then it dawned on me, the light bulb went off and it's this simple notion that the people of Port William welcome the reality of their togetherness even when it costs them. Even when it includes limiting them and making their lives more difficult. So we have this thing, I think, in American culture, uh, maybe in lots of places in the world, but I know it's here. Our problem is that we like community when it benefits us, when we can see clearly how it enhances our lives. But we have a harder time when we think it might be diminishing us or somehow impeding our desires or our, our, our fulfillment. When Barry, Wendell Berry talks about membership in his books, he's talking about the biblical. In fact, the character Burley Coulter who, who comes up with the phrase, the membership, and calls the town of Port William, the people of Port William, the membership. He's quoting First Corinthians 12. When he does that. In fact, he could be quoting the text that we're looking at right here. And it's it's reflective of how Jesus has loved us. Jesus didn't stop loving us when it became hard for him. It became really hard for Jesus to persist in his love for us to the point of the cross, where in order to to continue the process of pursuing us and demonstrating His great love for us, it entailed Him going to the cross to offer Himself an atoning sacrifice for sin so that those who would come to Him in faith and believe in Him would be reconciled to the God who made them and, 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 and who they'd run away from. Love is like this. It comes with imita- limitations. That we place on each other. In another book, Wendell Berry describes community like this, and I'll put it up there for you. A community is the mental and spiritual condition of knowing that the place is shared. And, and there's a big portion of community that has to do with place. This is why we have local churches. In fact, this is why we have home groups even, because In our society today, where we run around to different places, we work somewhere, we live somewhere, we go here to have fun, it's easy to break the fabric of community throughout the week multiple times. And so we're not in the same place. We're not being with the same people, which diminishes our ability to have those kinds of relationships that exist in difficulty and in wonder all at the same time. And so um, there's a portion of this, and and I think... Partly why people are moving back to the cities, there's this huge movement back to the cities because the city affords this kind of relationship. When you, when you start walking places in a city instead of always getting into your car, you bump into the same people. It's, it changes the way we do community, the way we live in community. And so there's this deep longing in us because of the bowling alone factor, because there's such a decay in our world, this deep longing for community. And you see this kind of rearing itself. Like we can't live without it. And so we're figuring out how to get back. We're trying to figure out how to get back to this community thing. And part place has something to do with it. Um, but that was just a freebie. I didn't even mean to put that in there. Uh, and that the people who, who share the place Define, now this, this is the part, define and limit the possibilities of each other's lives. Let me read that again. And that the people who share the place define and limit the possibilities of each other's lives. Now, this, this flies in the face of the American mentality of self fulfillment, individualization, all of that. This is totally contrary to that, which has been deeply ingrained in all of us year in and year out. It is the knowledge that people have of each other. Which, you know, takes time, years. Their concern for each other. Their trust in each other. The freedom with which they come and go among themselves. And that's really the blessed side of community, but it's, it's a subtle thing that doesn't happen immediately, And it's hard sometimes to point to it in a clear and concise way. And so the the difficulty or the challenge, uh, it ends up being the beautiful thing of community, is that first phrase about our our possibilities being limited by each other. But then the second phrase, uh, the second section is so important that that ends up enriching our lives in ways that, that could not otherwise happen. And I think that when the New Testament people would have read Paul's letter, they would have understood the term membership more in this way than in the Costco kind of way, right? They would have, I would have understood sort of the depth and the richness of this concept, the, the intense union that was being described in these words, members, and I love the passages you picked this morning to read because they, they show that how on display that union, that membership, that that commonality is uh, for the people of God. and So we're being invited, and this this is kind of the application of how you think about community. We're being invited this morning by Paul to start hearing the word member in a new way and to start seeing the people in our community And there's a a special commitment that comes between brothers and sisters. When we come to Christ, we are brothers and sisters. Which means we have a special commitment one to another. To be able to see our brothers and sisters in a new light. to, To understand that, yes, in fact, sometimes their presence in our lives is going to be an imposition. It's gonna result in limits that we don't necessarily would necessarily have chosen. They're they're gonna cause us to have to sacrifice in in ways that we wouldn't have expected. That they're not always convenient. They don't always show up at our house, you know, just at the time when we want them to, but that's okay. So we we have to understand um, that this is the kind of community that we're being invited into. And and actually our world is desperately longing to experience and to know this kind of community. And by the way, it's modeled in the Trinity, right? All of this comes from the very character of God, the very nature of God. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God. This is how He is as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Christ loved us, but then he also was expressing his love for God in that sacrificial atonement. Which leads us then to the second part. How do we walk in love? How do we do community in a way that matches how we think about community in this deeper understanding of membership? And the rest of the passage is about that. It's it's about all the signs that we're doing community in the way that, that God meant us to do it. What are the signs that it's actually happening? And and there's really only time for us to kind of dance across them, so that's what I want to do in the remainder of the time that we have, to sort of dance across these signs of true community. First of all, it has to do with how we approach truth, right there in the beginning, and and falsehood. And I loved um, Jeff Sorvik's sermon last week. If you missed it, we had a guest preacher who is National Director for Church Planting for the Free Church, and he talked about environments where community can happen. And and let's put that graph back up there again. Um, I found this really helpful. We've been talking about it and several of you have talked about this to me throughout the week. Uh, Communities are characterized by the level of invitation and the level of challenge that they have. And so in the bottom left, if you have low challenge, you never challenge each other, you never speak truth. And by the way, this isn't like speaking truth, just saying the hard thing. This is that and all truth, speaking truthful things, the, the doctrine of God, et cetera, for each other. If you don't have that, you end up being bored. Um, if on the right-hand bottom side, you have low invitation, very low relationship, social capital with each other, and yet you're constantly challenging people, then you have stress, Right? If you go to the top left corner, you have low challenge but high invitation, you end up with coziness and warmth. And by the way, in my estimation, go out on a limb here a little bit, I think this is where we are as a church. I love the fact that, you know, as people have said, we're sort of the PK recovery church. That's like the, the church where preacher's kids who've been broken and, you know, or people who've been hurt by the church, or they feel they come, and it's amazing how God has used this congregation over the years in that way. Anybody has been broken or come, fallen away from the faith and coming back, and you know, I, I love that. So that's not something to be diminished or denied in any way. We need to do better at that even still. More grace. More of that. At the same time, we have to be careful that in, in doing so, we don't remain on the left side, that we move over to the right. We have to keep, we have to be challenged. We need a little bit of Costco parking lot in our church, right? <laughs> to challenge each other at times, to move on and to meet higher expect the, the biblical expectations. So, this is, this is a process that we're going to work out you know, together, and, and God's leading us on. I think he already has been working this out in, in, in multiple kinds of ways, but I need to dance on. So that's what it means to speak truth uh, in community, is to, is to hold those together. It also shapes how we approach anger, how we approach. Isn't it interesting? Did you know that the, that the Bible says this, 26, be angry? This is something that some of you need to hear because you think that anger in and of itself is sin. And so you keep stuffing all the things that make you angry. And they're all in your closet. And there's this raging, boiling cauldron in your closet, ready to burst out. Because you didn't know that anger is a natural human emotion. The condition on it is don't sin. That's what the condition is. So be angry, but don't sin in your anger is what it says. And so this natural human emotion is so important because oftentimes what it does is it helps us to see where there's injustice in the world. Now, if we're all about ourselves then that sense of injustice is going to be selfish and self-focused, right? But as we become more about the mission of Christ, it helps us to see where injustice is in the world. And and the way that we respond to anger is to say, "Wow, I'm feeling this intense emotion, something is wrong. Let me pause and prayerfully figure it out. You know, what we will often want to do is, 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 well, is, is have sort of the wrathful response where we just sort of quickly, our, our emotion of anger just bubbles to the surface and we react to it. But what really the intention is not that we would sin in that way, but that we would allow anger to be a, a part of the way that we see the world and, 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 and bring about transformation. And so when we're angry, you know, if we can wait and think, okay, what would it mean to change these unjust circumstances? And my kids are saying, yeah, Dad, you should try that. Um, What would it mean to wait and and pause before we blow up and say, okay, there is something wrong here, but how am I going to change this? And then it says the sun, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And this is really about keeping short accounts. and, And I've seen this in my own life. I think it's so important for community. I think one of the strengths of my marriage with Jody, and, I, and, I don't, I, I, and there's a lot not to brag about. I'm trying, not trying to brag, but this isn't even bragging. This is just like saying how God's been good to us, is that we have really kept short accounts over the years and almost all the time not letting the sun go down on the anger. There have been a few times when we, just, we were so exhausted at 3 a.m. continuing our argument that we just fell in bed and went to sleep. And we said, okay, the sun went down. Bummer. There's grace. There's um, grace. We're going to get up and try again when we're fresh and not delirious, right? Um, So, so yeah, we have to be careful how much we put on that. But the idea is to keep your account short and keep your account short in your community of faith, too. Now, don't use this, though, as a means to just point out everything, right? We we also are commanded in Scripture to bear with one another. And I generally think that's the way to go uh, most of the time. But there are times when we need to get that account taken care of because there's something lingering there. Um, and, And then just to remind us that the devil uses the savage impulses of our anger when we let them go to wreak all kinds of havoc and destruction in our community and in our family and wherever it is. When, you know, I mean, Satan loves when we're out of control and anger can take us to that place of being out of control because then he can swoop in and shape the direction for his own nefarious purposes. So it also has to do dancing on with how we approach work. I love this. Work becomes transformed when you, when you get the concept of membership. Work becomes different. It transforms how you think about the way you work. Dorothy Sayers, talking of work, says this. The essential modern heresy is that work is not the expression of man's creative energy in the service of society, but only something one does in order to obtain money and leisure. Then she goes on to describe how men in the army in World War II had this amazing experience. They were making peanuts serving in the army, and yet they, were, they, were, they felt joy, a new kind of joy that they never felt before. Why? Because they were doing something to serve their country when previously all their work had been about selfishness and, and just getting money. There's something that happens when we, when we lay this membership concept over our work We go, okay, I'm not just working for myself. I'm working to be able to serve and provide for other people who have need, to be a blessing to them. Work is transformed. And it says, um, though, too, don't don't let the thief, in verse 28, no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So you may have something else, something to share with anyone in need. And so let me just also... Uh, in the interest of, you know, moving to the right on the graph, let me just talk about stealing. If anybody right now, and, and I believe the Holy Spirit works and will bring this to your attention if this is an issue, but if you are engaged in any kind of theft right now, would you let this be a day of repentance for you and turning? And we know that theft can happen in all kinds of different subtle ways. Some of you may be engage, I, I, and Some of you may engage in grand theft type things, but But there are other ways in which we get engaged in in theft, where we're just maybe by little bits and pieces taking things that we should. And I just want to say, if that's true, take the opportunity that Paul is bringing up today to make this a day of repentance and to change. And maybe you want to pray with somebody during communion um, and, and mark this day. But it's important that we heed the words of Scripture in that way. It changes the way we talk. It says, let let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And that word corrupting means putrid. It's used of fish. You ever smelled a really old fish? It's awful, right? And it's such a great illustration for the things that sometimes come out of our mouths. It's so easy, you know, for the sarcasm to run rampant in our relationships with others or in our families. We just let the sarcasm run go and go, and it becomes this putrefying sort of effect on the the, the community and the family, or we belittle the people around us, and we just, it becomes, it's fun at first, and then it just keeps going and going, and and people are being belittled, and it has this putrefying effect on community, And, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been in a conversation, you know, with two people, and one says something, and you know it's just, what they just said is crushing to the other person? And, you know, you're sitting there and you just go, you just feel inside of yourself, oh, I wish you wouldn't have said that. Well, the Holy Spirit has that moment too. Every time we're in conversation, the Holy Spirit is there and can have that moment. And he's saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead use this wonderful tool, which is speech, language, words, to build people up. I've shared this before. My wife always says, if you think of something nice about somebody, why not just say it? Tell them. Why do you let it reside in your head only? Get it out. And what's amazing is that this isn't just about being nice. It's not just to be a nice person, that actually this is a vehicle for the dispensing of God's grace. Our speech is a very vehicle, an actual vehicle for the dispensing of God's grace. So important. And then... Verse 31, we're going to dance even a little bit faster here. Um, Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So I don't have time to even talk about these except just to define them. Bitterness, you know what that is when something has been, something happened that's wrong and you hold on to it over time. And this is a thing that is bad for community. We have to learn to let go of those things, those harms that have been done to us and to move on at some point. Now, that's not to say there isn't a process for that. But if we're, we're, we're bent on holding on to this bitterness, then, then that's, that's when the problem is. Wrath, anger out of control. Clamor, clamor is a word that's like, uh, to put it in a modern context, it's, it's referred to how a child cries out for their own way. So think, I think of a child in a, you know, the child in the high chair, you know, banging on the plastic tray. Right, trying to get their own way, if you've ever seen that. That's what clamor refers to. Slander, that's when we say things intentionally to harm someone's reputation, whether they're, they're true or not, and, and we have to look in our hearts and say, why am I saying this? Am I w- wanting to build them up in the eyes of others or to bring them down? And then lastly, malice. Malice is, is, is that intense sort of inward desire, which, which really is at the root of all of these, which is to bring harm to others. And if, if we're experiencing some of that, and all of us, struggle with malice, um, if we're experiencing some of that, then we need to, that's where we need to really get in our prayer closet with God and, and ask Him to remove this, this desire that we have in our hearts. And right when we're about to be really pharisaical about all this, um, because there's a lot of uh, concepts and rules and regulations and how-tos this morning, right? Right when we're about to be really pharisaical about this, um, we have verse 32, and so this is very, for those of you who are good at following the rules and you get really angry at people who don't follow the rules, this verse is for you, okay? <laughs> be kind to one another. And I love this, tender-hearted. You could do all those things, and you could enforce all those things without a tender heart. And that would be disastrous. It says, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted forgiving one another, and then here's the key, as God in Christ forgave you. You could never, none of us, none of us is ever going to be able to do all the things listed in this passage. We're not going to be able to do it. We can't. And yet Christ has forgiven us. All right, my favorite Wendell Berry short story is called Pray Without Ceasing. It's a story of a murder of the narrator's great-grandfather, and the town comes together after they hear about it and they meet on the doorstep of the great-grandfather's house and they want to go and find the murderer and hang him. And the son of the murdered, the victim, steps out onto the porch and he quells, his, he quells down their rage. And the grandma, the, the wife of that son, says to the narrator, I wish you could have seen him. And then the narrator goes on, he says, Now, after so many years, perhaps I have. That son standing on the porch, quelling the town that wants to kill the murderer of his father. Now, after so many years, perhaps I have seen him. I have sought that moment out, or it has sought me, and I see him standing without prop in the deepening twilight asking his father's friends to renounce the vengeance that a few hours before he himself had been furious to exact. And then the story takes a poignant twist when we learn that actually the narrator who's telling this story is the product of a marriage between the murderer's family and the murdered family. And that marriage would not have happened were it not for the heroic membership of that son who was willing to forgive the murderers of his father. And so my question to leave us with this morning is what will your heroic acts of membership give birth to? As you take up the challenge of Paul to be members one of another, what will it give birth to? God, would you help us to lean into that future with your grace poured into us We could never live this out, but you've modeled in Christ and you forgive us when we fail and you are at work in us to change us and transform us and grow us so that more and more we will live out the beautiful membership being a part one of another that you have intended for us. We are inviting you to have your way with us and to bear much fruit through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.